0: like the French say. Bonsoir mesdames messieurs. Bienvenue à le Fugazi Alphabétique, le podcast and that's about the extent of my French anyway. It's the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the Fugazi catalog from Fuga A to Fuga Z. I'm your host Ian James Wright and joining me today to discuss Do You Like Me? from the 1995 album Red Medicine is Ben Jeffrey, a fan from Australia and uh, the first fan from Australia or anywhere south of the equator for that matter. Uh, Ben, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. How are things going uh, down under? And do you guys think it's annoying when people say down under? Is that just like really lame to you? Not particularly, I'm
1: sort of used to it by this point. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> it seems it's, like the kind fine. of phrase that you'd like start rolling your eyes at every time somebody from uh, elsewhere says it.
1: But as long as people don't think we're Austria, we're usually pretty happy. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think that. Yeah, it's um it's nice to talk to you as as we were just talking about before we started recording. You uh you live in Perth. Mm-hmm. For those listeners who don't know much about Australian geography, it's it's the one that's way away from everything else in Australia, right? All, all the way on the West Coast?
1: It is actually, I believe, I don't fact check this or anything else I say, um, I believe it's the most uh, geographically isolated capital city in the world. No way. Yeah, in terms of location to the other capital cities, I guess. So, um, And we, we wear that like a badge of honor, to be honest, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a drive to get to uh, Sydney or wherever.
1: A few days, yeah, yeah. Oh, man,
0: that's <laughs> across insane. It's pretty,
1: a pretty arid environment as well, so we don't recommend it.
0: I've never been to Australia myself, but I do have sort of uh, innate fond feelings toward Perth because there was a period in, of my life when I lived in South Korea. I did this sort of like teaching English jag over there for a few years, and I sort of chucked it all in my life and decided to have an adventure, w- went on this you know, on this program for people that uh, are interested in teaching English abroad. So I I get there, like, in the airport my first day, and I'm supposed to meet, a, like, a shuttle bus that picks me up somewhere. And I'm sort of wandering around in, you know, the first time I'd ever been to any country in Asia at all, and uh, sort of, like, trying to find where I'm supposed to be. And I, I spy this, like, white guy, this redhead guy. <laughs> I'm like, that he, he's about my age. He, he's probably doing the same thing. And uh, it turns out he was uh, from Perth also. So uh, yeah, he was the first person I met on this grand adventure in my life. And so that that's my brief association with, with Perth.
1: I probably know that guy. It's not a very big town.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's possible, yeah. possible.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a nice little place. It's, it's relatively backwards. But um, yeah, so am I. So I'll take it.
0: So tell me a little bit about uh, how you came to know about Fugazi and get into them and, and be a fan and the course that that took.
1: Yeah, well, that was sort of my point of difference in terms of reaching out to you. I've got nothing like the resume of some of the luminaries that you've had on the, on the podcast in terms of people that were at the epicenter of the whole the genre and um, you know the, the whole journey for Fugazi all the way through. Um, I'm sort of the exact... Opposite of that in terms of the fact that I grew up on the other side of the world um, in a small town, actually smaller than Perth, so about three and a half hours south of Perth in a quaint little place called Bridgetown, um, which is a town of about 3,000 people thereabouts. Um, Lovely little place to grow up, um, not exactly forward-thinking or cosmopolitan, um, like a lot of small towns around the world, I suppose. Um, So sort of at the start of the 90s, I discovered skateboarding, um, like probably I mean millions of kids around the world at that time, and that sort of opened the doorway into a whole musical journey as well. Um, and this is obviously pre-internet and all that sort of thing, so it was it was hard hard yards trying to find new music and and to find something you're really connected with, or to find other people that you're really connected with. Really, so um, there wasn't exactly a thriving punk scene in Bridgetown. Um, so it wasn't exactly like we could go and hang out at a club or go and watch live bands or anything like that. We we got um, information dribs and drabs through word of mouth, zines, um, you know, swapping cassettes, um, skateboarding magazines, sort of Transworld and Thrasher and those sort of things. And um, the the sort of the big resource in terms of um, mainstream media in Australia was a magazine called Hot Metal Magazine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which uh,
0: it sounds like sort of a parody magazine of some kind doesn't it
1: it probably looks like it these days but um, they they did sort of uh, veer out of the guitar solos and into some punk music from time to time so you had to rush down to the news agency and grab that whenever that came out as well and um, so it was myself and sort of one other really close friend and a couple of other guys that got into this kind of this music which was outside the norm for a town where ACDC is a religion you know um, right and where sort of listening to sort of stuff outside of the box or um, anything like that was, um, it, it was looked upon with sort of a jaw to a little bit in terms of the fact that, you know, people were a bit wary of, of difference in that sort of sense. Um, but that's kind of what attracted us to it as well, I suppose, in that regard. Um, and my friend John gave me one of our cassettes we used to swap um, and I believe uh, I've been sort of going back over this. I believe it was uh, December 1992 and it was a compilation that we would do for each other of music that we'd come across. And he had on it uh, song number one and, and the same. And those two tracks, uh, put it this way, I can only remember one other song off that cassette, but those two tracks really still stay with me and resonated straight away um, in terms of standing out amongst the, the rest of the stuff on, on the cassette but also everything I'd heard up to that point. Um, been re- in the lead up to, to sort of recording with you, I've been sort of relitigating why, Fagazi have had such an effect on me, I suppose, and, and um, why it resonates with me so much. Especially um, being quite removed from from Washington geographically, obviously, um, and then the politics of the place and stuff like that. I mean, um, it's, it's hard to to relate to that sort of thing from the other side of the world. And I think it's because um, they've obviously got an ethos and, and um, a viewpoint and all that sort of thing on, on a lot of things. But um, I, I feel that I sort of gravitated towards the more general um, side of that ethos in terms of, you know, the, the anti-commercialism and the um, the capitalism side of things and stuff like that, which I think is relatively universal for people from 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 places like I grew up. So instead of the punk music that I've been listening to with, you know, the class singing about the Sandinista or, or – um, Jello shouting Pol Pot over and over again, or uh, <laughs> or even even the Sex Pistols sort of rallying against the um, the royal family. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it was something that really sort of struck a chord because it was more personal and universal to me um, in that regard. So they straight away resonated with me and, and have never really left.
0: So interesting. You're not the first person who has two I've had on this show that has come to Fugazi through skateboarding. Which is mm-hmm. like, it's not like other physical pursuits in that way. Like, there's no there's nobody who gets into swimming and is like, yeah, I started listening to swimming music and it sh- sort of shaped my worldview. It's a yeah. it's a thing that's a little bit unique to skateboarding. It's a whole counterculture, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess you're right. It it's all sort of of a piece, you know. There are mm-hmm. things that you do and things that you uh, listen to if you're of a certain mindset, and they all they all dovetail in an interesting way. Yeah. Particularly, I think
1: um, you know it was an innocent time. It was the, the salad days, and um, things were easier to compartmentalise. I believe. Like this may be um, a case of nostalgia and what it used to be when I'm looking back on it and reminiscing. But um, there was punks, there the punk music, and skaters, and you know there were, we all we had these sort of compartments we fit into a little bit for better or worse. Um, and skateboarding was definitely one that sort of had ancillary things associated with it in terms of the fashion and the music and the attitude and all that sort of thing. So it was sort of, as I said, it was a counterculture,
0: I think. It's interesting that you mentioned that about the you know, the geographical locations in this song, which I'm sure we'll get into. I'm actually, I'm from the Washington DC area. So the things that come up in this song, the places, Virginia, Bethesda, Maryland, though that's like, that's in the common language where I come from, uh, so <laughs> I don't I don't know if there's anything enlightening I can tell you about the, these places, but I guess we we'll, it's something we'll get into as as we talk about. Do you like me? Which is the only thing I'll say as uh, sort of by way of introduction to this song uh, before I let you have a crack at it. Is it's a, first of all it's a commonly played song live. Uh, it's I made a little tally. It's number 24 on my list, which is. So bed for the scraping is only a couple spots ahead of it, um, but other than those two, there's no other songs from Red Medicine or later that were played more than those. So as as far as late period Fugazi, it's um, it's obviously one that they enjoyed playing and they pulled out a lot. And yeah. um, I will, uh, I'll just I'll give a quote that I found from Gee about this song to sort of introduce it. Which says, uh, the lyrics to Do You Like Me are kind of a collage of three separate ideas. It starts like a love song, then veers into a comment on prison construction as growth economy in the USA, then derails into a fantasy about this defense contractor's headquarters burning down. Uh, Lockheed and Martin Marietta had just merged to create a defense industry titan of terrifying proportion, and they opened their headquarters in nearby Bethesda. Then the song just spirals back into itself. So that's what mm. Gee has to say about it. Uh, what's mm. the first thing that uh, you have to say about it, Ben?
1: Well, I think it's interesting its place in the, in the canon. It's been the first song on, on Red Medicine. Right. Um, I, I think that it's kind of a bit of a, a statement of intent on that album, in my opinion. Like um, Red Medicine, for me as well, um, with where they came in on the journey, where I came in on the journey, rather, and where that fits in the in the catalogue, um, <clears throat> that, that holds a special place as well. And I, I think that it's partially because I felt like it's a... So I, I felt that uh, In On The Killtaker was a definite step from Steady Diet in terms of the evolution sonically. And I felt that uh, red medicine seemed to be that crystallising a little bit um, with the some of the noise aspects. Um, and, I mean, the fact that they start off with that that intro it's sort of like a industrial-sounding sort of um, noise improvisation. Um, and that's the first thing you hear when you put the album on.
0: Yes, actually, so I've, I'm pretty sure I've said this on the show before, but Red Medicine was my first Fugazi album, which makes this my first Fugazi song that I heard which makes the intro to it the first thing i ever heard from Fugazi which as you can imagine is sort of like imposing you know it made me wonder mm-hmm. what the hell am i getting into I, <laughs> why did i buy this album so um yeah it's it's absolutely a notable part of this song this uh yeah. industrial sounding intro so i think we have to uh i think we have to assume that it's like um you know it's a practice tape right it's not mm-hmm. and i guess it's not recorded uh with the intent of sounding like this terrible clanking machinery, it's just uh I guess that it, they were playing so loud that it was really terribly overdriving whatever sort of cheap mic they had with whatever tape machine they were using um just to sort of get their ideas down so it's like ends up sounding terrible um mm. I guess in a way that it's like um yeah it. That's it's a funny thing about demos if you're if you're in a band or like a, as a musician they serve to they serve as signposts of like larger ideas that you've had and I think if you're the one who is making the song uh, you you sort of you have things in mind to the extent that you hear things that aren't there like I've I've had the experience of like I I've, I've recorded demos where I guess to other people they might sound a little bare bones, but to me I can I can hear like big drum production, like huge kicks with like a gated reverb or like keyboards mm-hmm. in the background, horn parts. Uh, so it's to the extent where like it's it's almost to the detriment that I that I have to like make sure to put what I want into a song uh, or else it, it's it's just in my head so much so that you know I, I might forget to not make it so uh, so spare in the end, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, that's interesting. I never
1: thought of it like that before. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. an interesting take,
0: yeah. But actually, uh, there's another quote from Gee that I have here from a uh, Pitchfork interview. He says, with Red Medicine, we cut little segue pieces between the songs that we had taken from four tracks and practice tapes. Uh, I thought that was great because I loved listening to this stuff. Um, and uh, one other, um, one other a little quote before I, uh, I guess I just should use them all up right now. So, uh <laughs> Joe Gross says, um, let's see, I'm not sure if, if I took this from his book or not, but uh, according to the band, this is the very last song and a rare one even then to be brought in almost totally finished with very little writing, uh, rewriting in the rehearsal room. Um, so that's something. Usually their their songs are more collaborative, but this one was, mm. I guess, brought in as more, more whole cloth.
1: Right. Did I say who brought it in?
0: It doesn't, but I—I I, I guess we have to assume it's Gee.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely sounds in his warehouse, but yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah
0: from the from what I've observed, it seems like you know, there's there's such a great team Fugazi were, but if you have to break it down, it seems like Ian and Joe are sort of doing a thing, and then Gee and Brendan sometimes get together and do their own thing. So maybe maybe it's one of those sort of Gee Brendan things that they worked on and and brought to the rest of the band.
1: Yeah. Okay. No, I think the um the intro is definitely the thing that stands out the most. If you play this song to people for the first time, as as you're saying, it was for you as well, it's definitely something that catches people off guard. Um, and it's long, and right? It is. Yeah. It's. I actually love it. It's one of my favourite pieces of, of just noise. Yeah. Time. I, I really enjoy it. Um, and as I say, the putting. I remember putting on that at that tape at that point, and hearing that for the first time, and just thinking, oh, what are we in for here? Sort of thing. What have we got? <laughs> Uh, and then when it kicks into that that sweet sort of jangly, uh, that little riff, you know, so it's such a sweet melodic change. It's it's a real sort of juxtaposition, and I, I really I think that's one of the better ways to start an album that I've ever come across, in my opinion.
0: That's very true. It it gains power by the juxtaposition in sound, um, mm-hmm. and even even when it breaks into the song proper, uh, I was observing that it's. It's nice how comparatively clean Guy's guitar uh, is. It's not, as, <laughs> it's not as wildly overdriven as some of Fugazi's songs can be. And that's another thing that, like you said, juxtaposed with that sort of terribly distorted uh, intro uh, is sounds even more clean by comparison.
1: The more I listen to it recently and with fresh ears, and you'd hope as you get older you develop a more refined ear, but who knows? Um, it's just so well balanced as well, like the way it's performed and and produced and everything. I I think, yeah, I was just listening to the interplay of the guitar and and all that sort of thing. and It's just so well put together as a song, Um, breaking it down more and more for the purpose of of having a chat to you. One of the things that I just thought over and over again is just the balance of it's just perfect really.
0: Yeah, are you talking about like the structure or just sort of the Everything,
1: but like the way the structure fits together, just the way it all um, it all pieces together so well. Um, and then even just the way the instruments sit on each other is perfect as well. And and particularly I thought the two the guitars in particular was, was something that I just found that particularly towards the end there, the, the interplay between them, is just it just sits there perfectly in my opinion. Yeah, I don't really know how to express it, but balance was the word that sort of sprang to mind.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. There's I... I think of this as one of the Fugazi songs where guitars are sort of the star of the show. There are a lot of songs where it's it's like all about Joe's bass line is, is amazing. Um mm-hmm. this one I mean it's good bass line as usual, but not not one of the most memorable ones. He's just sort of uh doing his thing, supporting the song. But uh yeah, it's those it's those guitars and the just sort of jangly it's almost surfy, uh, don't you <laughs> think? Yeah, yeah there's
1: definitely an aspect to that yeah absolutely yeah. yeah it's
0: something about like yeah. the jangly feel of the main riff is surfy um, not to mention that the snare roll that Brendan does during uh when Ghi, when Ghi is singing mm. religious he's like doing this long wipe out kind of like budu, 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 budu.
1: Brendan is the is the unsung as usual probably to be honest um is probably the unsung hero I think in this song in that he he manages to to fit this like to segue the parts to to seamlessly together into, with these roles and these fills and that sort of thing. Like when I was sort of breaking it down again and, and listening to what, how do these juxtaposed parts work together, I think Brendan's responsible for that for the most part. I think he's just he, as usual. He just he just kills it with making the whole thing seamless.
0: Yeah, I I love Brendan's playing in this. Absolutely. That I think maybe my favorite part is. I, I mean, it's it's even hard to call out a favorite part. I love how he sort of breaks in. Uh, introduces the song with those Mm -hmm. uh those snare hits that are just this perfect few snare hits in in this great little rhythm um the the clickety clickety drum part during the chorus right like that's all he's playing is some sort of like rim clicks while uh while Guy is singing do you like me and then uh yeah just bursts back in um that that's that's a wonderful that's one of those wonderful moments where sort of everything drops out but the mid-range of the song you just get these drum clicks some guitar strumming and then in come the bass and the drums uh and and it's all wonderful again.
1: Mm, yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree.
0: I really like the I guess I I want to call it a breakdown part. Um like I mean just right before the end, right? The the last time Guy sings do you like me I guess and then there's this sort of I want to say descending chord progression, although I was listening to it again and I, I was like, well, I think actually the chords are ascending going up in pitch. It's, or maybe it's the kind of thing where the guitars and the bass are all playing something kind of different. Some are going up, some are going down. So you don't know exactly what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, there's that breakdown. Then Gee starts playing this lead part after he sings step on. Um, so that whole thing is very extremely dancey, really catchy. Um, and also, as Guy is uh, is doing that, there's there seems to be tambourine on the track during that part, which even makes it even more rhythmic and dancey. And I guess the tambourine rhythm is mimicking the what Brendan's doing during the chorus with those rim clicks. Um, it's it's all very it it just comes together in a great way. I agree with you.
1: Never picked up on the tambourine. There you go. But um, so there was an opening for a tambourine player at some point.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I yeah, could
1: right? have tambourine player. What a missed opportunity!
0: Yeah, like next yeah. time, uh, I, I feel like probably people out there are like, "Well, I'm I'm too punk to put tambourine on a song." But listen, man, it works sometimes. Don't uh, <laughs> don't fear the tambourine. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. Plus, I can play it. I'm pretty sure. So there should be more of it.
0: <laughs> There's tambourine is. I think every, everyone assumes they can play it, but it's one of those things where if you've ever been to a karaoke place where they have uh, tambourines there for people to use, man, people do not know how to play those things. Man, you're crushing my dreams, there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I thought I had an opening there. Never mind.
0: Yeah, it's, it's one of those... I feel the same way about Triangle, believe it or not. Is, um, <laughs> I was... Brief tangent, I was... I was in a band that did sort of tour of the American South, and I remember we were staying in Lafayette, Louisiana, at a at this sort of uh, hostel sort of place where they they hosted a Cajun music jam. Uh, it was just a few instruments, one one of which was a triangle, and uh, that was my first experience in like how that can be used as a rhythm instrument. And they invited people to sort of take part and try playing. Uh, it's harder than it looks you know, to to play Wrong. that in a rhythmic way, like in basically as the only percussion instrument in a little jam. Uh, so that's, this is my salute to the tambourine players and the triangle players of the world. Yeah,
1: they, they, yeah shout out to them. They, they don't get enough love that. They? <laughs> they don't, absolutely. Especially not. the punk scene. I, I completely agree.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as long as we're talking about just the sonic qualities, any any other things to you want to shout out before we tackle the lyrics?
1: Um, I I think it's interesting that you use the term dance as well because it did occur to me that um, it's got an indie... Like, if you just were to drop out the vocals altogether and perhaps you need to take out the introduction as well whilst we're we're hacking at it, um, (laughs) you would end up with quite an indie dance track, I think. Like, quite a... Yeah, I I don't know. I've I've sort of got a jangly, jingly sort of dancey vibe going on. It, It obviously builds towards the end and the end in my opinion, sort of as it, it builds to the climax and the crescendo musically is is almost, like, perfectly written. Again, like, I'm gushing again because that's what I always do about Fugazi, but, um, like, in terms of the way it builds to that climax at the end with the the drums and the, and then the, the guitar interplay, I mean, Joe's doing what Joe does and he's just killing it, laying it down underneath that bedrock as he always does. But the, the leads and that sort of thing, like, as they build up I just find that whole crescendo at the end, it moves me every single time I listen to it, Like, and listen to it quite a lot of late, obviously. Um, and there's not a single time that it doesn't affect me sort of in some sort of way. Um, and that, in my opinion, is what good songwriting is.
0: Yeah, your your comments about sort of uh, your ideas like of what, what it would sound like if you strip certain parts away or isolate them, like this would be a great song to sample for like a hip hop record. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's got uh, this uh, captivating rhythm to it mm-hmm. that I think could could serve that kind of song really well if if you if you do it right.
1: When's the next Wu album coming out? Do we know?
0: <laughs> exactly. I haven't Is listened to that again? album in a long time. I can't remember if if this song was actually sampled on it. I, I, I don't, don't recall know.
1: it. but It's not bad actually. I, I was very, I went into that with quite a lot of trepidation listening to that, but it's actually pretty good. I enjoyed
0: it. So, <laughs> someone recently. Uh, uh, Emailed me and suggested that maybe I do some kind of bonus episode where I we like discuss that. I'm like I, I don't know if I I'd have to think about it. I I don't know what the format would be. And I don't know if I would have enough to to say to really make a discussion out of it. But um, it's a it's it's a project that I respect. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, for sure. Also, I I will not put my hand up for that one. Um, <laughs> hip hop hip hop made it to Bridgetown quite late. So I see, um, it's a miracle we found punk. Um, not not a particularly big hip hop community either, to be honest with you. So um, I do love it, but that came later in life.
0: You guys are you guys are just getting uh, NWA and stuff at this point. <laughs> yeah. I yeah,
1: I had my I had my NWA tape uh, <laughs> take, taken off me by my mum. So oh no,
0: <laughs> oh, parents yeah, just that... don't understand, as uh, <laughs> as the great Will Smith said. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I believe that's the first Will Smith reference in this podcast. There uh, so. oh, you go. There you go. <laughs> first Australian,
1: first Will Smith. Knocking down doors all over the place. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, a lot of the time.
0: <laughs> well, what about the lyrics here? It's a, it's a Gee song. Sometimes that means we don't know exactly what's happening all the time. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But what do we so, know?
1: Well... <laughs> I think it, he's summed it up best himself, really, hasn't? In terms of the fact that it, it really is separate songs, isn't it? In terms of there's not a lot of uh, structure or flow um,
0: thematically. It's it's a bit of a uh, head jerker. Uh, it's uh, yeah, one one thing then another. Mm. Hard to get a mm. handle on a little bit. Um, but I guess the way it yeah. starts is is magnificent. Like the the part of it that is a love song. Um, man, your eyes like crashing jets fixed in stained glass. Um, that's amazing. That's, <laughs> I think, one of my favorite opening lyrics to a Fugazi song or, or any song for that matter. Because because here's the thing. Writing a metaphor about someone's eyes, you're in dangerous territory. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> it, it really lends itself to cliche. It's mm. It's been done a million times in various sort of sappy ways and like to the point where you know shakespeare was satirizing this in the early 1600s in his sonnets he has like a sonnet where he makes fun of how all the poets are like comparing their mistress's eyes to to this or that um but uh but eyes like crashing jets fixed in stained glass that is startling and new and vital and i i really respect that
1: hundred oh, uh, percent. The whole, actually the whole, this whole verse is, is genius, isn't it? Like it have to be up there with the best things I've ever written lyrically.
0: I, I, I'm not going to disagree with that. It's, uh, it's really memorable. Uh, yeah. one other, I want to shout out, uh, to the band, the mountain goats, uh, in their song, idols of the King. There's the line, your eyes, twin volcanoes, bad ideas dancing around in there. Um. It's one of the one of the only other good eye metaphor lines that uh, that that's I can think of immediately. Um, good yeah, good lyrics uh, in that band. Yeah, for sure. very
1: good. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, I, I think that that yeah, as you say, it's. I think you used the term vital. Did you just use the term vital when describing that? Because I think that that was something that sprung to mind for me as well. Like mm-hmm. straight away from that intro, the the way that the the guitar riff kicks in, and then. Lyrically to kick off like that, um, it just is. It's impetus. It's yeah. It's brilliant. It's a great way to start.
0: Yeah, and I mean the first lyrics on an album, the first line. If if you can write a really good line to start an album, uh, I respect that in a huge way. <laughs> There's there are a few albums like that. Um, do do you like Patty Smith?
1: I have a passing interest in Patty Smith, but not a big fan. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, her album Horses. Begins with the line, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Yeah. And I always thought that that line, I mean, it's the kind of thing that makes you sit up and take notice. Like, okay, where's this going? Tell me more. Uh, and it's the it's the same feeling I, I get from, from this line. Um, so I
1: wrote that on desks in high school and had no idea where it came from. So there you go. There's the <laughs> origin story of some of my graffiti that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> I,
0: I hope she actually did did write that herself and uh i'm not giving her credit for like a, a common place that was out there but yeah as far as i know that's yeah, nice yeah makes uh, sense yeah good first line
1: yeah fantastic
0: and um yeah actually the the next little stanza there the the phrase you should pay rent in my mind very interesting it seems like something that's caught on in recent years I feel like I've seen or heard other people say something like that like you know so and so is living in your head rent free um, as a way of saying you know don't don't spend your mental energy on this or that uh, mm. and that's that's another thing that I'm wondering like where did that first come from I certainly never heard it in any context before this um, so I don't know if if Gee came up with that and it somehow worked its way into uh, into broader Uh, discourse then good good for him i guess
1: yeah it's definitely become part of the lexicon i think more recently probably um with you know what's going on politically around the world and everyone shouting at each other um it's something i've heard used as an insult put it that way and
0: yeah
1: on the interwebs when people are shouting at each other from echo chambers, but um yeah i am thought of it in that sense as well with that line um because this initial Part of the song does sort of come across as as a bit of a love song. Do, do you feel that this is this is? Would you agree that that this is a bit um, of a love song? This this initial part, or do you think it's about something else?
0: It's um, it's funny. It's I mean, it's absolutely about <laughs> different things, and I guess if you really want to try to synthesize it, like you could find a way to do that with like uh, I don't know, because it seems to be somewhat about this merger of uh, military industrial companies. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems to be somewhat about uh, corporate prisons and mm-hmm. um, those things working together in concert. So in that way, like two entities uh, coming together, uh, it's there's metaphorical uh, things ringing out a little bit. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I don't know. And I guess that goes back to, you know, the first line, your eyes like crashing jets is uh, it's it's almost like it could be also a stream of consciousness type thing where Gee writes that line and he's like, OK, that makes me think of of military jets. So let mm-hmm. me put in a stanza about about that.
1: Yeah, well, I was wondering whether there was there's also the aspect of the of the first part in particular and the in particular the line you should pay rent in my mind. Whether it's about sensory input as well, so whether it's about all the all the media we're consuming, all the input that we're continually having to take on board these days, um, whether you know that you think of the mind as real estate in terms of you know there's, there's a finite amount of it available, and we're just overloaded so much with with stuff that's sort of foisted on us as opposed to that that we're choosing to take in. I sort of was wondering whether it was something along those lines as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah, what, whatever it is, I mean, I think Guy in this song does a good idea, It uh, does a good job of getting across this sense of obsession with something, you mm-hmm. know, be it a person, be it whatever else. Just not only with the lyrics, but the way he repeats lyrics and, and the sort of manic tone in his voice, especially at the end where he keeps repeating, I've got a question uh, and do you like me? As if, like, he's he's really perseverating on it, He's he's... He's obsessed with someone or something. Mm.
1: I would just like also at this point to say that I believe that this is Guy at his best, like uh, vocally, like um, in terms of like the delivery, the tone, the urgency in his delivery, uh, the emotive sound of it all. Like this is my favorite version of Guy vocally for sure.
0: Wow. I I would really have to think about like what my favorite Guy vocal performances are because he... He from from day one has done a fantastic job in that respect.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. It's just I,
0: I personally
1: prefer the urgency to the brooding. I prefer urgent um to brooding gi, but that's just my yeah. my take on it. I, I, and he's he's hitting all his his points, he's you know, he's rolling his tongue but like he does <laughs> yeah. he's doing that the the way he does that, the line religious, you know, little little like it's just um yeah, I, I just think he, he hits all the marks here for what I prefer from him personally
0: yeah it's it's the small things in his delivery as you said the line religious you know he it's not just religious he adds a little syllable to the end religious you know Mm. it's that that sort of thing that little enthusiasm he puts into the way he delivers things it just it gets you on board i guess
1: it really does yeah it sort of pulls you into its vortex for sure
0: um this the the French part intrigues me. Um, yes, <laughs> like do the French say this? Bonsoir, regret, Um It's uh, I, I guess good evening. Uh, sorry, see you tomorrow. Um, I, I don't know if that's like a stock phrase in French. I tried you know googling that exact phrase to see if any like results from actual French language come up, and it seems like Fugazi is the only. Thing so like it's it's not a it's not a cliche phrase uh, all that together.
1: Um. So Fugazi lied to me about what the French say. I'm, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I walked the streets of Paris and I didn't hear anyone shouting it out. But I just thought that perhaps it was more whispered. Um, do you reckon this is the most tattooed Fugazi lyric? Uh,
0: which one do you like me? Uh,
1: um, no, the the French section of this. Oh, the French believe, one. Yeah, I think if you Google image searched it, it would come up as the most tattooed Fugazi lyric.
0: Wow, that's a great question. Yeah. The most tattooed Fugazi lyric.
1: Yeah, um, I've just got a feeling that it's something that resonates with a lot of people and is, <laughs> and is inked on a lot of bodies around the world. Um,
0: that's another great question that I'd have to think about. Like, what if I had to get a Fugazi tattoo, uh, what are what would be my, like, top five, top ten choices? I can't immediately come up with one. You know what? You know what comes to mind? Uh Long distance runner is uh, that yeah. could be a thing that people tattoo on themselves. To be like, uh, if I stop to catch, to catch my breath, I might catch a piece of death. That sort of thing. Yeah, that seems From like. From that a... song,
1: in particular, I would I, what you've actually nailed it for me. It would be um, the answer is there, but there is not a fixed position.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's... That seems like a very tattooable song.
1: Yeah. There we go. All right. I'll book it in. <laughs>
0: shut the door so I can leave I don't know there's, yeah. there's probably but I've got it. a feeling
1: my my clubhouse leader for most tattooed presently before we start our run of Fugazi <laughs> tattoos ourselves and skew the numbers is going to be this particular one I've just got a feeling that um I know it's a very very popular lyric and I think it's grown in popularity yeah. over the years and I think it's it's part of the mistake of it um, yeah you know, things sound cooler in French
0: they do, and they sound more romantic in French, which is maybe 100%. the point of it. Like, uh, it's it's a good thing to put in a love song, you know, a line or two in French. Mm, mm. Por quoi pas? My
1: romance. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> you know, speaking more of the, the romance aspect of the song, I mean, just the title itself and the title line, Do You Like Me? This, I'm sure you'd probably agree with me, I, I think maybe it's meant to be, Remind one of the classic sort of like elementary school, high school note that you pass somebody that says, "Do you like mm-hmm. me?" Uh, circle one, yes, no, mm-hmm. and the uh, and if you have a a sort of saucy, coquettish uh, crush, maybe she will write maybe and circle that instead.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I think it definitely, it definitely the way that it's put across um, in terms of just a single line. Uh, Do you like me? And then obviously the follow up, I guess it definitely says something about adolescent insecurity to me for sure.
0: Yeah, right. It's not something that you say after you're an adolescent. It's like, so do you like me? No, because I don't want to know the answer most of the time, so I don't ask the question. <laughs> yeah, by the time you're finished being an adolescent, you've learned yeah. that the answer is usually no. So uh, yeah, yeah I've, come,
1: I've come to have come to grips with this. Yeah, so <laughs> it's best not to ask. But yeah, no, it does seem to me it does absolutely 100% it's interesting. You say that remind me of um, yeah, just that that insecurity of adolescence and the, and the wanting to be liked and the needing to be liked, um, which does which does tie in more neatly with that first verse than it does the thematically the rest of the song for whatever reason so there's that juxtaposition again so there's like that juxtaposition between the introduction musically and the rest of the song and then I find there's that same stark contrast between that first stanza and then the rest of the songs lyrically as well and even they're not tied together in any way by the chorus really
0: right right um, yeah the that whole part so the the, the part about the prisons in Virginia, I was really—I was trying to see if that refers to some real-life event. I was trying to search for at some time where twenty-seven prisons were being proposed or whatever in Virginia. I—I I couldn't find anything like that really. So who knows what this actually refers to? If it's—if it's a real thing or just uh, more of an exaggeration of something that Guy is pointing out. Um, I get the. I get the idea that it's more of a just reference to the corporate prison, like the for-profit private prison system. Um, mm-hmm. Is that something that you have in Australia?
1: I was about to say, I'm not sure you're aware of the fact that this is one of many things that the rest of the world looks on at the United States and says... Um, why
0: (laughs) well there's there's so many things how can i possibly keep track yeah this is
1: this is definitely one of them though in terms of no we don't we don't um as far as i'm aware (laughs) not a lawyer um and haven't been to prison yet so um but no generally state-run institutions um and not run for profit necessarily there's there's definitely privatization within them in terms of contracting and stuff like that which is controversial of its own accord but not just nothing like the sort of monetized system you're talking about as as having over there it's, it, it seems incredibly odd
0: to us right yeah, so for those who aren't familiar with the the general idea here um, you know the the classic kind of prison that most people think of is run by the government, you know be it federal prison or or state prison run by the state government. Um, and those prisons, yeah, as, as you say, sometimes they would, might contract out food service or whatever. But you know, basically the the correctional officers are on the payroll of the of the local government, um, and just it, it's it's sort of run that way. But in in the United States, there are also private prison corporations, um, which so again, it's the bill is footed by the taxpayer, but instead of the government's. Building and, and staffing and running a prison, they pay a, a corporation to do it—a company, which uh, it take it takes everything fucked up about the, you know, the basic corporate profit motive and just makes it way more horrible. So, it, generally, in most cases, the government pays a stipend to these companies based on the number of prisoners that the prison houses. So, if you think about it, even for a minute, right? The, how does that company? make a uh, profit which you know again a corporation needs to constantly make profit for its shareholders and grow and make more and more money so how do they do that well uh one obviously how many prisoners they have in the prison two how long they're in the prison for and three maybe the most disturbing possibility is how much less than the stipend that they get from the government do they spend on each prisoner's needs, mm-hmm. right? So, <laughs> like, all you have to do, even without, you know, reading about any allegations of uh, wrongdoing, is just think about those factors for minutes and conclude, like, how fucked up that is. Mm. Like the the motive to, <laughs> uh, and and if these corporations are involved in groups that are lobbying the government, uh, to have you know mandatory minimum sentencing or or like tough on crime laws etc cetera, etc cetera. it's it's a very sinister motive here and obviously presumably the idea behind correctional institutions if we are to take the the name at face value is to rehabilitate the behavior of people who break the law uh <laughs> get them into a situation where they are no longer breaking the law and can rejoin civilized society uh, as a law-abiding citizen. Uh, but, of mm. course, a corporate prison doesn't really have that incentive, do they?
1: No. Well, uh, I just on the, on the on the surface of it, sort of commodifying vulnerable people is never really going to work out for the best. Like, oh, yeah. Um, it's it's it seems it seems completely insane and then um as i say it's it gets so like a lot of things from the outside looking in they're so woven into the fabric of how things are done now you're never going to be able to put that toothpaste back in the tube and that's why it's a little bit scary from the outside looking in and hoping we never go down those sort of paths as a country and and, um, you know, what they say, if you, if you can't be a good example, be a terrible warning. So on stuff like this, unfortunately, we do sometimes look at the United States and some other countries and say, OK, let's let's not go down that path.
0: Yeah, I, um, I hope we I hope we can help you guys out in that regard. Thanks for that. Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, you're absolutely right when, you know, just the phrase vulnerable people, because, of course, I mean, it's uh, just based on the, the bare facts of the matter itself. It seems uh, like a terrible system. But when you roll into it the other problems with policing in America, parentheses, capital letters, racism, mm-hmm. it's, it becomes that much worse. So, um, yeah, it's it's one of the terrible things about America. And I guess that dovetails into the other thing that Guy talks about in the stanza where he's, he refers to Lockheed Martin, mm-hmm. the... Um, which, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with Lockheed Martin, they are a, a gigantic, uh, basically, defense contractor. So, yeah, the basically the amount that we spend in the United States on the military and, you know, quote-unquote defense uh, is, is <laughs> ridiculous. I have a number here as we speak. Um, you know, this happened less than a month ago on July 21st, uh, 2020. The House of Representatives approved 740 billion dollars for next year's uh, defense budget. I don't know if you know how much Australia spends.
1: Not off the top of my head, but um, it, it's still it is a it's an issue that yeah. we discuss. Uh, uh,
0: compared to our 740 billion uh, in yeah. the United States dollars. You guys spend uh, 25.9 is the latest statistic that I have. So still uh, a staggering amount of money, but I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I suppose we're in Ireland. We've got we've got that, so you know we've, we're not as worried about that. But. Um... Yeah, um, yeah, it's still definitely sort of an issue over here that, that people discuss regularly is is a uh, defense spend. And again, it is something that we look at the states and say we don't we don't want to go down that path in terms of spending. Do you do you have it tied to GDP? Do you know? Do you have to spend a certain amount on defense?
0: I don't have that stat, no. Uh, that would be okay. interesting to look up.
1: I believe we do. I, I Again, I probably should have researched this before I just start saying yeah. stuff. But I believe that we actually have it tied to our... Um, gross domestic product. In terms of, we have to spend a certain proportion of money on defense, yeah. um, which is a weird, which is a weird concept of itself, really, isn't it?
0: It is, yeah. Um, no, I, I don't think we have that. Um, we we just have lawmakers who increase spending every single year uh, because the military always needs more money. It's it's unpatriotic not to give them completely ridiculous amounts of money. So there is a company, Martin Marietta. That merged with the Lockheed Corporation in 1995 uh, when Red Medicine came out and uh, which, OK, fine, they they did a merger. But for some reason, they needed a one billion dollar taxpayer subsidy to cover the costs of this merger. Right. So basically the taxpayer paid these two companies to merge with each other, which, you know, they justified by saying, you know, in the end that will save the United States money on w- what we spend for uh, for the things that we buy from these companies. Which is maybe true, but still, it seems bizarre to pay two companies that, uh, and that actually does not include that one billion dollar number. It did not include uh, the taxpayers paid these companies thirty-one million dollars for just for executive bonuses, right? Oh. So, like, <laughs> it it seems very perverse that our money goes to these. <laughs> executives not even their salaries their bonuses for arranging a merger
1: seems like a pretty sweet deal if you work for the companies but it doesn't particularly right. seem like government's role in in uh, commercial society and just in my humble opinion you know not telling you guys how to do things but yeah seems odd.
0: yeah it just it seems yeah. pretty wrong to me
1: <laughs> so I, this is sort of fits these particular issues sort of fit well into what i was sort of fumbling around trying to describe before in terms of the way Fugazi resonated with me in terms of being able to put stuff out there um often you need to dig a bit deeper like you would with this like they're not shouting you know they're not saying Lockheed or Evil they're not saying anything they're just dropping the name in the lyrics and same with the prison scene that have sort of um opened it open the door a little bit for people like me on the other side of the world to sort of look into these issues and to and to explore things that the sort of the um, the micro politics of of that region, because that's that's what it obviously affects the United States, that he's talking specifically from his point of view, living nearby. Really, isn't when he's writing his lyrics, I would have thought because these are, are regional issues to gay to an extent, aren't they?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's um, um when you live in the middle of all these places, it's 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 weird. I. I it's. I mean, it's hard to say. I can't. I don't have the point of view of somebody who grew up yeah. in the Midwest or the West Coast or something like that. Um, I I grew up in that environment. My father worked for the federal government in the uh, Department of Transportation. Um, you know, went to Washington D.C. every day to work. So it's it's like, <laughs> it's it's weird how much government is uh, is omnipresent in 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 sort of daily life in, in that part of the country. But at the same time, it's it, there, there's a weird duality, right? Because people also think of Washington, D.C. as just the government. And they often forget that it's a real city full of real people who have real lives. And a lot of people work for the federal government, but certainly not everybody. And they, they say the sort of the phrase Beltway Insider derisively, as if everybody who lives in this city is somehow suspect because of their proximity to the uh the seats of power but uh but no it's it's a city and uh i think you know that's one of the things that fugazi really helps bring to the forefront of at least the consciousness of punk rocks adjacent people in america it's like no th- it's a real city and this is what's going on there uh, th- this is what the people are writing about and thinking about well, worldwide,
1: as it turned out, because yeah, I mean, I'd thought of it as the monument, and you know, some people in wigs and whatnot, and then uh, yeah, obviously, I think about it now, and, it, and it's absolutely sort of discord is the first thing that springs to mind for me personally. So, yeah, it's not just not just across the states; it's across the world.
0: Yeah, there's there's one guy I always suspected uh, wore a wig, but uh, it wasn't a powdered one, so. Um. <laughs>
1: I'm going to name names? They're just going to leave that hanging.
0: there nah, there's this one guy in a in a band's. Yeah, I'm not going to leave nah, <laughs> nah, nah, nah. um Juicy. So I I did want to to um, also talk about just a couple of things in the live versions of this song, mm-hmm. which I mentioned before. I don't know if you if you've had a chance to to check out live versions or, or see them play this live, but they they do. Uh, actually, do a sort of version of that uh, practice tape intro often yeah. live, um, yeah. and and Guy is sort of like playing a couple of chords and sort of slowly ramping up. He's like, do, do you, do you like me? And then he sort of jumps into it. Uh, so that's it's interesting to have seen the way that came together.
1: I love the live intro. Actually, it's really good. Yeah, yeah it's it's really well done. Yeah.
0: Sometimes I wonder if that was born out of the the way they put it on the record and and like put it up against that section from the practice tape or like like was the practice tape actually from them doing an intro to this song or was it something completely different and then they took that and made it part of the live song i don't know
1: yeah i don't know yeah but definitely i think it's because of the way like we discussed earlier the way that when that first riff kicks in um the way it takes things up a notch i think that Maybe they try to keep that keep that dynamic happening live as well as on the on the recording, perhaps.
0: Sure, sure. Um, another good dynamic in the live versions is that uh, in the Lockheed Martin part, uh, it's Ian who does the who says Lockheed Lockheed, and then Guy does Martin Marietta. So it's a it's a nice little opportunity for Ian to jump in there and let Gee take a couple of breaths, I suppose.
1: Yeah, have a bit of a shout as Ian loves to do. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's important to let him shout a little bit in every song I say.
1: So what I didn't mention before as well. Yeah, actually um, I have actually had the pleasure of seeing Fugazi (laughs) live and they did play this track. Um, So they've only been to Perth twice. Um, They came in 1993 um, and 1996. Um, So they came for the 23 beats off tour in 1993 and they played the night before a very important um, high school exam. (laughs) um for me so i wasn't allowed to make the three and a half hour trip up to go and see them just absolutely devastating yeah um with the way my life turned out academically i would have been much better served going to the show but that's another (laughs) that's another story altogether but so i missed them like just absolutely heartbroken to have missed them the first time but i did get to see them um when i toured red medicine in 96 um yeah, and they, they played this. Um, I wish I could tell you that I recall it all, but um, it was 1996. Yeah. Um, the, that one is available from the live series. The first show, the um, the 23 Beats Off um, show, Ian has mentioned in a few interviews over the years as being one that still annoys him because someone stole the recording from the desk. Oh. Um, hmm. They had a new... Yeah, so it's not available on the download. Um they had a a new recorder, new DAT recorder on the desk. He said it was, in one interview he said it wasn't a particularly memorable show, but it was a show, you know, it was a good show. In another one, I think he's done the old uh, nostalgic build-up and he's saying it was an incredible show and it was one of the best shows that have ever played and now he'll never get to hear it again and (laughs) how how annoyed he is about that. But, (sighs) um, yeah, so there's a bit of a check in history with Fugazi and and the town that I currently live in.
0: Yeah, um, you Australians, man, anything that's not nailed down.
1: Oh man, it's just our convict culture. Just,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> you can't shake it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, very disappointing that that is the representation. But to be honest, whenever anything like that happens, it doesn't happen often, but every now and again, like anywhere else, the band will play and someone will steal some crap out of their van or whatever. And I'm straight away embarrassed for our town that it's, uh, <laughs> some meth head has helped themselves to so my favorite band's gear. Oh no. <laughs> but um yeah so we have a bit of a check of history and uh, as i say ian has definitely brought that up a few times in interviews over the years about how disappointed he was um and i too am disappointed because i didn't get to witness it um and i can't can't download it
0: well uh i mean i, I guess you have the one time at least that's that's more yes. than some people have like i've i've had people on the show who got into the band's after they had stopped playing, which I mean, that must be real frustrating. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, yes, you, yes, I'm, you, I'm one up on them. Yeah, <laughs> you got a piece of their history. It's uh, yes, and
1: I was front and centre for that second show. I was young enough to be to be right at <laughs> the front and uh, and bathing in it and basking in their glow. Um, and it was hands down the best live show I've ever seen to this day. It was absolutely incredibly mind blowing. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful that I that they traveled to the most isolated capital city in the world to, for me to pay 16 Australian dollars um, <laughs> for a couple of hours worth of entertainment. So I'm not complaining about that aspect at all, mate.
0: Not bad. All right, sweet. Mm. Well, um, there are a couple of things I wanted to, to do before we start wrapping up here, which is, you know, I like to look for covers, if I can find them on YouTube, that bands have done of songs. I was expecting to see uh, a, a little plethora of covers of this one, but surprisingly, not really. All I saw was one dude, um, his name is Cody McGrew, doing it on acoustic, just like him in an acoustic guitar. Actually, pretty good job, so shout out to Cody McGrew, nice job. Good uh, well Cody. Yeah, hey, other bands, I mean, cover this one, this is a great song. Ah, oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Also, I went to uh, the the Facebook group. The Alphabetical Fugazi asked if people wanted to toss in uh, their two cents about this. Um, let's, let's see, a couple of comments here. Andy Larson says, This song amps me up like nothing else in the Fugazi catalog. The French lyrics delivered in Guy's breathless cadence make large swaths of, swaths of this barely intelligible. But it is so high energy, such a statement of intent. Oh, that's exactly what you said, isn't it?
1: Very eloquent. I, I, I Very well said. I agree with <laughs> everything, everything Andy has to say there. Yeah, brilliant.
0: Uh, our friend who goes by the alias Seldom Careful says, uh, this is a truly incredible song. If ever an opening track telegraphed a record, it was this one. The noise collage at the beginning is a terrific trick. Without it, this could be a Lost Pixies song, albeit better. Yeah, that's interesting. That that sort of mm. surfy feel that I mm. uh, called out earlier that that is something that I find in a lot of Pixies' music. It, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Something a little surfy about it. Yeah, he also says that the the transition into Bed for the Scraping is among the best one-two punches in the history of rock music. Um, I'm I'm very much in agreement on that. The First Can't two songs on this record, bam. Hundred percent.
1: Yeah, yeah, damn. Yeah, yeah for sure.
0: Let's see, Ramsey Rosenberg says, It's a brilliant not-love song. The parallels between romantic infatuation and America's obscene, fecund relationship with the military-slash-prison-industrial complexes are drawn clearly. The first listen of the song was confusing for me as a teen, but a second listen made it all click into place. It's remained a favorite since, and it appears, given current events, that not much has changed. Over 25 years, the lyrics are still completely relevant. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Uh, hundred percent, yeah, well, these
1: people are making me feel a bit inadequate. They're very, <laughs> very, very. You sure we could just cut this down? You can record with one of these guys. No, <laughs> yeah, that's it. They, they put it very well.
0: I think one, one or two of these people have uh, have reached out to me and maybe on the show in future. All yeah, right, so we'll see about that. Um, but anyway, uh, I I feel like we both uh, have said some pretty positive stuff about this song. But you know, how exactly do we feel about it? Let's talk about ratings. She likes me. And maybe, Ben Jeffrey, you could tell me, out of five stars, what would you give this song in the context of the Fugazi catalogue?
1: I've put much thought into the ratings. I know it's an important part of the podcast. Um, And in terms of where it lies relative to all the other songs, it's right right up there for me. And um, I don't want to give it five because I I just don't want to hand those out really nearly. I think 4.7. (laughs) Wow.
0: Okay. Getting really into the uh, the uh, granular aspects of the rating yeah, system. That's I like the it. metric system by the
1: way. Do you, are you familiar with that? We use the metric system. <sighs> M- I can't wait I can't, that into first. <laughs>
0: how, how do
1: you spell that? One last shot. One last shot at you poor Americans. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> it's alright. Uh, yeah, we, we can take it. Um, yeah, as uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I hardly thought at all about the rating of this song because for me, it's it's five stars. That's, wow, it's like, wow. I, I hardly even have to think about it. It's one of my absolute favorites. Um, yep. Who knows? Maybe it's because it was my introduction to Fugazi all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I, I just love it. It's uh, fantastic per se. It's fantastic as an opening track. There's so much great about it that I guess we've called out already. I love it. It's wonderful. And it's five stars for me. Uh, simple as that. I agree.
1: It definitely jumped out at me um, as you know, when the opportunity arose um, to be part of this and, and when this was one of the ones. It definitely jumped out at me I, because of the fact that I have, I have such a connection with it and because it's such a, a fantastic song. It's definitely a little bit intimidating to do because of the of the way it is structurally and musically and lyrically, but um, I couldn't turn it down because it means, means quite a lot to me, this song.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you could join me for it. My humble way of saying thanks, I will allow you to do some plugs. If you have any, uh, I don't know, social media accounts, any projects that you work on, anything that you'd like to point out to our listeners to to find you, uh, say them now. Um,
1: Look, I don't particularly have any. I've got a couple of projects that I'm doing some vocals for, but there's nothing in there that will be ready for a little while. Um, I'm not particularly interested in following social media. It's really just me giving uh, philosophical rants or complaining about my commute. But um, you can look me up if you want on Facebook. It's just Ben Jeffrey. Um, but yeah, I don't have anything particular to plug. The only thing I would like to do, if I could, um, is I'd like to dedicate this to my mum who passed away a little bit over a week ago and was a huge part of why uh, I'm into the music that I am and the person that I am. So...
0: Oh, that's very sweet. I'm I'm really sorry for your loss. It's okay, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you could uh, t- take the time to uh, do the show, like in the midst of I'm sure all that craziness. Um, so thanks very much for that. And hey, if thank you, you um, if that project that you're doing vocals on comes to fruition within say the next couple of years, oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> just email that over to me, and <laughs> I will I uh, will share that with our listeners on uh, the social media accounts. Thank you.
1: Appreciate it. Yeah, thank. You.
0: Well, as far as my plugs, you know, it's the same stuff as usual. Uh, You can reach me at z at gmail.com. If you want to share the show with people, tell people about the show, rate it on Apple Podcasts, write a review, whatever, that would be really cool. You can join that Facebook group I was talking about. Just search The Alphabetical Fugazi, um, get a chance to enter your comments about uh, whatever song I'm recording next. And uh, speaking of next songs, I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing Downed City. Until then, keep your eyes open.